Okay, restoring the people of God. Ezra 7, 1 through 10. After these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, Ezra, um, he came. Let's see, we'll stop there. The son of Amariah. We'll go down to verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year. And Ezra came in the fifth month, verse 9, on the first day of the month. He began his journey on the first day of the fifth month. He came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him, verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So as we've been seeing, the descendants of Abraham eventually became the nation of Israel. Through them, God was working to bring forth a people who would, in covenant with him, co-laboring with him, reflect the nature of God and bring the values and purposes of the kingdom of God to bear in the earth. Throughout the centuries, these people would cycle through times of great devotion and victory to times of rebellion, idolatry, and defeat. Through their history, we see that God delivered them out of their captivity in Egypt. And eventually, yes, there was a lot of trials in between, but eventually he got them to the promised land. When they got to the promised land, they uh, eventually took the city of Jerusalem. They built up the city. They built a temple in the city of Jerusalem. And from there, they were beginning to expand the reign of God throughout the land, moving aside, getting rid of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, all the ites. Unfortunately, um, that's not where they stopped. We also see that they had a repetitive cycle, again, of continuing to fall away from the Lord, getting into rebellion, uh, succumbing to idolatry. God was continually merciful. This is thousands of years of history. God was continually merciful, kept sending the prophets to them. Uh, they, were, they continued to get even harder, more callous. They would come back, then they'd go, it just got bad. So gradually, um, they found themselves as a nation because they rebelled towards God so badly, they ultimately found themselves captive to the nation of Babylon. The walls of the city they built were torn down. The temple they built was destroyed. They were now captives to the might of the enemy of God's people. Excuse me. They were captive to Babylon. Thankfully, God did not leave things that way. He would once again show himself strong towards his people as he began the process of restoring them to himself and to his purposes. Now, previously, we looked at the importance of knowing and then receiving the word in the process of the restoration of God's people. Uh, uh, last week, I think we looked at the importance of, uh, of bringing the kingdom of God to bear in the land. And we looked at that one characteristic that, that needs to be a part of who we are as a people of God. As we grow uh, in, in the Lord, we should find that God's character, God's nature, and above all else, it's that, that nature of love that affects everything would be a part of who we are. And uh, we started with Ezra, our text was with Ezra, but what you'll find is that in order to complete what we're looking at, we're going to have to go into Nehemiah, and Nehemiah's work in the process continues and brings to a culmination what God began with Ezra. So the second thing we're going to look at today is that a, a, a growing uh, um, city uh, back at that time was supposed to influence the nation around them. Today we're going to liken that to the people of God and the kingdom of God that is manifesting through the people. And what God wants for us is not just to be a people who know that when they die they're going to go to heaven. That's important. We're not minimizing that at all. 
but it's not the end. It's the beginning. What God is looking for is he's looking to build up a church, a people in whom God is living, God is working, and the Bible says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And I think it says in Matthew chapter 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so what God is wanting uh, to do in us and through us is he's wanting to allow the, the kingdom of God to have an effect on the world around us, right? He doesn't just want your family to get saved. He wants your family to reflect the culture of heaven, righteousness, peace, joy, to be a hallmark in your family. Because I know, listen, I, I'm, I've been a Christian for a long time. As a pastor, uh, oftentimes uh, you, you get the brunt of the enemy's work because you're, 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 you're at the forefront of what God's doing in your church. And so uh, does it surprise you that the enemy attacks the leaders first? And foremost, does that surprise you? That's why we're doing the sword and the trowel uh, praying is because we're covering not just you, but we're covering the leaders of the church because it seemed like the more God began to move, the more we see the leaders being affected in different areas of their life because that's just how the enemy works. And so, listen, um, uh, as, a, as a pastor, um, I'm just a regular person just like you. Uh, the Lord's put me here. He anoints me um, to do what I do, but I'm not Superman. I'm not a perfect person person. I'm just a regular person. And so, uh, guess what? Uh, we still have problems at home. Wife and I still argue. <sighs> well, no, uh, we don't argue. We have, we have what we call intense negotiation times. We still have disagreements. Family, uh, kids still witness that, you know. Um, and, but, you know, it's just, so we're going to church. We're living for God. We're doing the best that we can. But, you know, sometimes the kingdom of God is not necessarily always reflected in your everyday life, but we want it to be reflected in our everyday life. We want to learn how to grow in God and how to minimize the attacks, uh, uh, the effects of the enemy's attacks on our life. The enemy's going to do what he's going to do, but you don't have to fall prey to it. You can be aware of what he does, and you can, you can take uh, steps to minimize what he's trying to do in your life. Even Paul says, the, uh, we wanted to come to you sooner, but the enemy hindered us. And so he, you have to learn that the enemy is going to do what he does. God didn't remove the enemy from the world, but he's raising up a church that knows how to take authority over the enemy. I've given you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means harm you, right? So we have the authority of Jesus. We have the name of Jesus to do what? To stand against the wiles of the enemy, right? We can't stop him from doing what he's doing, but we can stop him from having an effect in us. And so what we want to do is we want to get to a place where as a people, and when all this stuff is happening, you re- oh, that's the enemy. No, we need to take a stand against this and allow the kingdom of God to have its effect in our family. We want the kingdom of God to have its effect when we go out into the world. We want it to begin to affect our schools. We want it to begin to affect our jobs. We want it to begin to affect our cities. And you say, Pastor, you're just dreaming. No, it's not my dream. It's his dream reason it hadn't happened is because we thought it was a pipe dream. We didn't realize it was the desire of God for us to do things. And you know, wherever you set your bar, that's what you aim for. If your bar is just, man, I just want to get to heaven, well, you might get there, but, but you're not going to affect the world. If you think, hey, the world, God's not concerned about the world, it's just going to pot, you know, and God's coming on a rescue mission to just get us out of here, well, that's how you're going to live. 
But if you begin to realize that God loves this world and God wants to change this world, and as a bride of Christ, he's not coming back for a defeated bride. He's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle, a mature bride, a strong, you know, bride that, is, that it knows how to function. We are men, women. We are the bride of Christ. So we've got to learn how to allow God to work in us and affect these areas, not just me, myself, and I, but the world around us. Yes, their neighborhoods. You know, I was uh, walking around a neighborhood, you know, and, and I noticed when I was walking around the neighborhood, because I left my, <laughs> funniest thing, I, I, I met Anna at a house over there, and I said, well, let me just leave the van here. You know, when you get older, you, you kind of start, you know, forgetting some things, but I didn't think I'd forget a van. I took the van over to the house, and I said, well, let's just ride together. We'll go somewhere else, and we'll come back and pick it up on the way home. Next morning, I went out to go do what I do, and there's no van. I said, where's the van? Uh-oh, I forgot to get the van. So I had to walk to get the van. You know, I said, well, I might as well get my walk-in while I go get the van. And uh, so I'm walking around, walking around this neighborhood, and I see in this neighborhood something, astrology. It's just a regular house, but they got a business, an astrology business. I said, we got work to do. We got work to do as the people of God. We're not going to carry signs and, and the Lord's judge. No, we're not going to do that. What are we going to do? We're going to allow the kingdom of God, the, the spirit of God, the nature of God. Because the Lord says you can speak peace and your peace will remain. We can start pushing the darkness out by being the light, by recognizing who it is that lives inside of us and allowing him to get out. But no, no, we just want to go to church and be safe in church. Well, you can have that if that's what you want, but it's not what God wants. It's not what I want. I want what God wants. That's why we, we do, the, uh, we do the, the new members class, so you realize where the bus is going. You may not want this, well, then you need to get on another bus, but this bus is going in this direction. We want to affect the world around us. We want to push out of this place, new age. We want to push out of this place, uh, uh, witchcraft, sorcery. You say, well, it's good witchcraft, bad witchcraft. No, it's all from the devil. We want to push it out. We want to minimize its effects. We want people to be so enamored by the power of God and the prophetic word and what God can do that they're not going to the dark side to get it. Because God is greater and his power is more. Uh, uh, and we want to be able to tell people how God created them to be. He created them to be incredible. Uh, he created the men and women to reflect the nature of God, to have purpose, to bring, to bring his kingdom and walk in power and authority in this world. One of the reasons we're having such a mess is because we have weak families, weak people who think that, and they've been taught that they don't matter. But to God, you matter. You matter. You're important. Families are important in the nature of God. Anyway, let me get back to where I was going. So God wants us to have an effect in this world. In order to have an effect in this world, we have to be a church who loves, but we also have to be a church that knows how to flow in the Spirit of God. They're mature. We are mature as a church, and then we have influence when we, are, we learn how to be led by the Spirit. Now, I'm talking to Pentecostals here. Maybe not everybody's Pentecostal, but we're hoping by the end of the day everybody will be. But it's one thing to be baptized in the Spirit of God with the evidence of speaking in tongues, and you have an experience, but you haven't learned how to submit to the leadership of the Spirit of God. The Bible says we are mature. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the mature sons of God. 
We want to teach you how to be led by the Spirit of God. We want to get you saved. We want to get you baptized in the Holy Spirit. But we also want to teach you how to be led by the Spirit. Let the Spirit of God lead you in your life. Romans 8, and 12, uh, uh, 8, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now, who's he writing to? The church. And what have they been doing? Living according to the flesh. He didn't write this just, just to, he's telling the church, he said, look, as a church, we're not supposed to live this way anymore. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are, and the word for sons here is mature sons of God. All right? For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Well, you know, I got the spirit of God, but I'm afraid of devils. I'm afraid of demons. I'm afraid of, well, I'm afraid of all that. No, that's not why the spirit of God inside of you resists that. He's stronger than God. The devil means nothing to God. He could eliminate the devil like that. Well, why didn't he do that? Because he wants to use you to nullify the effects of the enemy. You hear what I'm saying? It's never been a battle between the enemy's power and God's power. It's never been that. There's no equal to God. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified together. In this passage, it says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are mature sons of God. What we may not realize in a cursory reading is that the word used for sons is not talking about a child. What it's talking about is a mature son. So according to this verse, another sign of maturity is that they are led by the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit implies two things for me. One is that you're being used by the Spirit. That is, you, are, you have the Spirit of God, not just the Spirit of God that lives within you, but we're actually talking about the Spirit of God that comes upon you. We'll look at that here in a minute. And, and that you are strong in the Spirit, which means to me being baptized in the power of the Spirit of God. Life reveals to us that a full-grown adult is known for their physical strength as opposed to a child. Right? You ever, you ever, you ever go to a child and say, hey, let's, let's play arm wrestling, right? If you wanted to, you could just poop. Child will never want to arm you wrestle you again, right? Uh, until they get a little bit older, you know. So we don't, we don't, we we realize it's not a contest, right? We would naturally expect an adult can accomplish things a child cannot. As an aside here, don't take this illustration too far. When we're talking about maturity in the Lord, we're not necessarily talking about physical age. We all know some adults who might as well be the child in the family. Don't look around. And we all know some children who are mature far beyond their age. That being said, we will characterize someone who is mature as someone who possesses strength, not just any strength, but the strength of the Lord. Acts 1 and 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus told the disciples whom he had trained, whom he had commissioned, whom had already received the Spirit of God, in this sense, they were born again. All right, so I need to explain something to you. He said, when we're talking about the Spirit of God, there's a Spirit of God in you, and there's a Spirit of God that comes upon you. Same Spirit. The Spirit of God in you 
dwells inside of you is, is the one that leads you and guides you and helps you to become more like Christ, reminds you of the things of God. The Spirit of God upon you is what brings the power of God to, to, to carry out the mission of God. The mission of God is we are supposed to be witnesses in J Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the innermost parts of the earth. Now, let me tell you, first of all, well, how do I get the Spirit of God in me? Well, Jesus said it this way, John 3, 3 through 5. Jesus answered and said to him, Moshe, surely I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Moshe, surely I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter in the kingdom of God. So let me just make this plain to you. Coming to church does not make you a Christian. Coming to church makes you an attendee. What makes me a Christian? Is, is it signing up for the membership class? It does not make you a Christian to sign up for the membership class. What about getting on the church row? That does not make you a Christian. I was sprinkled as a baby. That does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is when you recognize that you are separated from God. Recognizing that you're separated from God, you recognize that Jesus was God's plan to reconcile you with God. Jesus died so that you might live. You believe that Jesus was an innocent man who gave his life. No one took his life. He gave his life of his own accord like a lamb was sacrificed for the sins of those that were coming to worship. Jesus was the Lamb of God who of his own free will and volition sacrificed himself to, to pay for the sin debt that we had incurred which allowed us to be able to worship God in Christ. The Bible says, he that knew no sin became sin for us, that we, might be, uh, 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 that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, our righteousness, which means that which is right in the eyes of God, is as filthy rags, is what the Bible says before the Lord. Nothing that you can do. Listen, I've been to Mexico, Latin America, and for some reason, a lot of the churches down there believe that if you'll just walk around the block on your knees or walk for miles and miles and do some form of penance or whatever the case may be, it will make you right with God. It will not. The only thing that will make you right with God is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and putting your faith in what he did. By grace are you saved through faith, not by walking on your knees, not by promising to do certain things. No, by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God uh, uh, made available to those who believe. Belief is faith. I put my faith in what God has done. Well, what happens is we recognize that we are never able to enter into the presence of God because God is holy, God is righteous, God is pure, God is clean. And we might think, well, I'm better than this guy. But when you get in the presence of God, you're going to realize, but I'm not good enough for him. I can't stand before him without being pronounced guilty, and my guilt does not let me be reconciled with him. And so when I accept Christ in my life, you see, my righteousness is like filthy rags. However, Christ, he that knew no sin, he had no sin from the time that he was born, lived his entire life, never had sin. The wages of sin is death, is what the Bible teaches. And so Jesus had no reason to die. But he died. That's why it's important you realize. He didn't, nobody took his life, he gave his life. 
Why did he give his life for you and me? And on, his, on the cross, what he did for those that will put their faith in him is he takes, when you accept him and you put your faith in him, he takes away your, clo- your robe of unrighteousness and he has put it on himself at the cross of Calvary. But then he takes his robe and he puts it on you. And when you come into the presence of God with his robe, you can have fellowship with God. This is the work that Jesus did. So what happens is because of the work that Jesus did when we confess him and we put our faith in him, our sins are forgiven. We become set apart by God. We become holy. And then what happens to these holy vessels is the Spirit of God, God's Spirit, God himself comes and indwells us. What makes you a Christian is not what you believe. What makes you a Christian is who lives inside of you. We are the temple of the living God. God lives inside of you. When you get born again, the Spirit of God is God. He takes up residence in you. John 20, 21. Yes, amen. John 20, 21 through 22. Jesus said to the disciples who had walked with him, he said, peace be to you. He's already been, he died. He's about to resurrect. I mean, ascend, go to the Father. And he says, "Uh, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. I believe at that time that the disciples were born again. Just like you and I have to be born again, the disciples had to be born. Well, they walked with Jesus. Yes, they walked with Jesus. They had faith in Christ and all that kind of stuff. But the Spirit of God didn't take up residence in him until Jesus completed his work and breathed on them. Kind of like when God took Adam and made a clay thing and then he breathed in them and he received the breath of life. This is what's happening to the church. Jesus said, receive. Those of you that believe on me, receive. And they receive the Spirit of God. Now today, Jesus doesn't come and breathe on you in the sense that he physically appears. But when you believe the breath of God, the Spirit of God, because the breath of God is the Spirit of God, takes up residence inside of you, and you now have the Spirit of God living in you. Do you understand that you are a supernatural people? God lives inside of you. You need to recognize who it is that lives inside of you. It's not just you anymore. It's not just you by your own willpower trying to become a better person, uh, trying to become a better father, better husband, better provider. No, it's the Spirit of God that lives inside of you. Now, if you've never been born again, you've never put your faith in Christ, then you don't have the Spirit of God, and it's all about you trying to do the best. What you're going to find is that your willpower will only get you so far. You're still under the captivity of what the Bible calls the evil one, Satan, the tempter. You need to be set free from his captivity and brought into the kingdom of God because God is good, the enemy's bad. Just telling, I'm just telling you, that's good theology right there. You write a theology book, God is good. Volume two, devil bad. <laughs> All right, so Jesus told these same disciples that had received the Holy Spirit, that had been born again in a sense, that they were not to leave Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. And these are the ones that he said in Acts 1, 4 through 5, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Oh, well, I thought the promise of the Father was salvation. Actually, the promise of the Father is that they would receive power. We're going to look at that here in a minute. You, which you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from then. Remember, you shall receive power. The Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem today, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So these damn disciples that had, are we already established? Well, at least I did, whether you're following me or not, that they've been born again. 
The Spirit of God lived inside of them. And these same disciples, Jesus said, don't go do what I told you to do until you receive the power to do it. Well, the Holy Spirit's living inside of them. That's what I'm trying to tell you. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us, but the power of God comes on our life when we receive what we call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's what the disciples receive. Now, they had to wait 10 days to receive it because the day of Pentecost had not come. But what we're going to find is that as the people of God today, if you believe, you don't have to wait 10 days to receive it. You must be born again. You're not going to receive the Spirit of God come upon you until you have the Spirit of God in you. This is not a promise for the lost. This is a promise for the church. First, you're born again. That's a promise for the lost. Then being baptized with the Spirit of God, then coming in power, that's a promise for the church. Who is the church? All those who have been born again. So if you're here today and you've not been born again, we can take care of that. And then you're positioned to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit of God. And it's my contention, we're a Pentecostal church. Not all Pentecostal churches think the same. I don't believe that you're not saved if you've not been baptized with the Spirit of God. If you're saved, you're saved. But there is a second experience that God wants us to receive, and I don't believe it's something that was only to take place in the, in the first century church and in the, in the church of the, of the beginning of time. I believe it was prescriptive for what God wanted all Christians to do. He wanted all of his people to walk in power. The promise is not for Peter, Paul, James, and John and the rest of the Fab Four. No. It's the promise was not just for them. It wasn't for Peter, Paul, Mary. It was for all of us. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, what did that look like? In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were all together. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. You might not like that. There's another way of saying that. And began to speak with other languages. Languages that they did not have the, the ability to do on their own. It's kind of like if I grew up in America, I, if I grew up in the South, I knew Two, I know two languages. I know English and I know Freeportese. No, just kidding. Wherever Jerry's at. It takes a translator to understand Jerry sometimes because he speaks Freeport. <laughs> Shirley's like, what? Well, I'm just telling you, you're from Freeport too. Anyway. So here's what happens. You speak one language. So you get baptized in the Spirit of God, and all of a sudden you begin to speak a language you don't know, you don't understand. What is that language? We don't know. It's an unknown language. But it's a, how do I do that? It's a gift of God. It is, a, it is a miracle of God that takes place in your life. Right? So anyway, uh, they began to speak in an unknown language, and that became the evidence that they were baptized in the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 2, 38 through 39, Peter said to that same crowd, repent and let everyone, those that had come, and what had happened is they got so excited, so jubilant, they began to speak, they spilled out on the streets, people heard them speaking in other languages, languages they knew, they didn't know, they heard them speaking and glorifying God in their own language, because they were on the day of Pentecost, they had come from Babylon, they had come from other places all around the world, they didn't all speak Jewish, and all, I mean Hebrew, and so they began to hear them speak and praise God in other languages, knowing they didn't 
didn't know that. And then Peter begins up and he begins to preach to them. And when he begins to preach to them, they were cut to the heart. And Peter says in Acts 2, 38 through 39, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. Remember, uh, you're going you're gonna to get saved. And then what happens? And you too shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's for them. No, Peter says, for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. That's us. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11. So what happens when you get baptized with the Spirit of God? The power of God comes upon you, and you have the ability to flow in the empowerments of God. People call them the gifts of the Spirit, but they're really the empowerments of God. God's power flowing through your life. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. To some are given the word of wisdom of the Spirit, to another word of knowledge of the Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all of these, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So what's happening is when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit of God, you now are positioned to be able to flow in the gifts of the Spirit. It doesn't mean you're going to do it because it still takes faith. It's the Spirit of God working through your life. But some of you will be prompted by the Spirit of God to give a, a gift of tongues and a service, and another one will be prompted to interpret that. Another one will be prompted with a prophetic word. Another one will be prompted, you've seen me move sometimes in, in words of knowledge. You know, that thing that I had about, about the uh, migraines is a word of knowledge. I felt like the Lord give me, right? It was from the Lord. And Well, you're just talking out of your head sometimes. But sometimes it's the Lord. And when it's the Lord, it's like God is saying, I see you and this is what I want to do in your life, but it still takes faith to receive. Even Jesus, when he was ministering, it took faith to receive from the Lord. How do you know that? Because he went to Nazareth, and he could not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. They didn't believe. He had everything working in him, everything working through him, but they wouldn't receive if they didn't believe. You still have to believe. You have to trust. You have to have faith. But anyway, what began to happen is all throughout the book of Acts, the record of the beginnings of the church, we find that being baptized with the Spirit of God was fundamental to being a Christian. This was, what's the right word here? It's not, it was required in the sense that you were missing something. You were incomplete. Not that you couldn't go to heaven. We're not saying you can't go to heaven. We're not saying you can't be a nice Christian. We're not saying that. But it's kind of like you can go to boot camp and you can have a, 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 a gun issued to you, but if you don't bring it with you, if you don't go collect it, you don't bring it with you, you're going to battle just like everyone else. You're a soldier just like everyone else. You've been through boot camp like everyone else. But if you don't bring your weapon to battle, you're going to be less effective than someone that has one. Right? And so the Spirit of God, being baptized with the Spirit of God, is like an equipping for service, for work, for battle. And you get the empowerments of God. You get the 38s. You get the 9 millimeters. You get the 50 calibers. You get the Huey helicopter. You get all of that when you're baptized with the Spirit of God. We're making sense to you. This is fundamental to living out the Christian life. The reason the enemy has had his way with Christians is because Christians don't realize that he's more afraid of us than we are of him. We should be. 
He should, uh, we, we should recognize that he in reality is more afraid of us, but we've practiced like we are more afraid of him. And one of the reasons we've done that is because we've been living life incomplete, ill-equipped, without everything that Jesus, but it's not Jesus' fault, it's our fault. We haven't recognized, my people perish for lack of knowledge. And then you got to have faith. Wow. Okay, let me keep moving on here. Acts 8, 5 through 8, and then we're going to jump down to 14 through 17. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, which, by the way, Philip was saved and baptized in the Spirit of God. They were hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed. That's normal. That's not abnormal. That's supposed to be the normal Christian life. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. That's the normal Christian life. And there was great joy in that city. Why was there great joy in that city? Because they had a crusade? No. In a sense, what happened was the power of God was moving. Right? People were getting saved, healed, delivered, and set free. So when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, in other words, a lot of people down there are getting saved. Awesome. Now, the apostles heard of it, and they said, well, wait a minute, that's good, but we need to do something here. When the apostles who were in Jerusalem heard, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Well, they've already been saved. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's in them, so what's he talking about, the Holy Spirit coming upon them? For as yet, he, the Holy Spirit, had not fallen upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. He laid his hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 37, Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. What is he talking about? Well, Peter's Jewish. Up until now, it was only Jews that were getting saved. And it's not because God didn't want other people to get saved. That's just their understanding. The Jews were going to get saved. It's for the Jewish people. And then God began to work with Peter. He got a vision. And in this vision, he saw a sheet come down full of all kinds of what to him were unclean foods. And in this vision, God said, go and eat. And he said, I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. And he said to him, what I have called clean, do not call unclean. Peter understood, this happened three times, Peter understood that this was a metaphor, God was trying to teach him something, because right about that particular time, three Gentiles knock on the door of the house where he is saving, and I mean staying, and Gentiles and Jews don't mix, you don't let them come in the house, you don't go into their house, but he knew that God was preparing him for something, so he let him in the house, and when they came, they said, an angel appeared to Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, and he was a God-fearer. That means he, he, was, he, was, he liked the things of God. He wanted to serve God. He did great things for God, but he wouldn't become Jewish. But God came to him, and he says, I've seen what you're doing. I've seen your giving. By the way, he said, I've seen your alms. I've seen your giving. And the angel of God came to him because he was a big giver to the things of God. And so what happened was he said, go send for Peter. So Peter came down, and if he hadn't had the vision, he wouldn't have gone. And when he came to his house, the Gentile house full of Gentile people, not Jews, Gentiles, and like I said before, oil and water, they don't mix. But God was talking to Peter, so he walks into the house, and when he's walking to him, he starts to teach them about the, the, the things of God, teach, to teach them the Word of God. And when he's wrapping up his message, the Bible says, in truth, Peter says, in truth, I perceive that God shows no, no partiality, but in every nation, not just Jewish nations, 
In every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to Israel, preaching, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism with John preached. Now he's about to make it uh, uh, applicable to them who are Gentiles. And it says, if you jump down to verse 44, it says, while Peter was still preaching, while he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon on all those who heard the word and those of the circumcision, the Jews who believed, were astonished. What, 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 what's going on here? Because as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles as well. How do you know? Because they heard them speak with tongues, unknown languages, and magnify God. What I'm trying to get you to realize is the baptism of the Holy Spirit has a, uh, a signature to it. And the signature is when you receive, you're going to speak in a language you do not know. Well, I don't know. That's right. You don't know. I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen too. All I do know is that when I do it, when we pray for people, it always happens. If people believe and receive. Amen? Because the Word of God is true. Let God be true in every man alive. One more instance and we'll move on. We're almost done. Acts 19, 1 through 7, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they're already Christians because they're disciples. And what's the first thing he asked them? What I'm trying to get you to understand is that it was normal to be saved and then immediately to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was the normal Christian experience in the New Testament church. We've changed that around here in today, in today's day and time. But as for this church, because I can't do it in other churches, I can't speak for other churches, but as for this church, we're going back to the New Testament pattern. Save, baptize with the Spirit of God. Amen? And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? They said, we haven't even heard where there's the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, what then were you baptized into? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. In other words, they've been saved, but now they needed something more. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. Now let's go back to our premise, because you may have thought I forgot about that. The Bible says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So the second part of this verse that is relevant in talking about maturity is that the strength that we possess is strength that is controlled. You're going to receive the baptism of the Spirit of God. You're going to receive the power from God, and then you're going to learn how to control it. No, I don't want to do that. I want to learn how to control it first, and then I'm going to get it. That's not the way God works. You receive it, and then God teaches you how to flow in it. All right? So while an adult is someone who has strength without discretion, that strength can be misused. This verse says that mature sons of God are those that are being led by the Spirit. That is those who are in submission to the Spirit. Uh-oh, I just said a bad word. I said the word Submission. That's a four-letter word in, the, in today's culture. You don't submit to anybody. You don't submit. He said, well, that's not true. You submit to your boss for money. Why won't you submit to the Spirit of God who loves you and does more for you than money could ever do? Why won't you submit to the Lord who loved you so much that he died for you? But you'll submit to your boss for money. 
So you submit. You just don't always submit to the right people. The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I'm sorry, I got off on a tangent. Let me come back. That is, those who are in submission to the Spirit. Luke 4, 1 through 2, and then verse 14. Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. Jesus returned to the power of the Spirit of God to Galilee. And news of him went through all out, throughout all the surrounding regions. So Jesus went into, into the wilderness, having been filled with the Spirit of God and baptized by the Spirit of God. Why did he go into the wilderness? Because that's where the Spirit of God led him. Nobody wants to go into the wilderness, but if the Spirit of God is leading you into the wilderness, if the Spirit of God is leading you to Lake Jackson, I mean the wilderness, then you got to follow. When I first, I don't know if I should share this or not, when I first got called and went to the first church I went to, was Ezekiel 2 was the, was the verse he gave me. And this verse, he said, um, I'm going to use you. It doesn't mean I'm a prophet. It's just the metaphor. I'm going to use you as a prophet to the nations. I'm going to put my word in your mouth, eat my word, do what I say, and tell the people what I say. He said, you're not being sent to a people of, that speak other languages. And I'm not talking about the Spirit of God. I'm talking about you're not going to go to other cultures. You know what I've always wanted to do? Go to other cultures. He told Ezekiel, he said, you're going to go to the people who speak the same language as you. And they're not going to listen to you. And I want to tell you something. Since I've been preaching, I've been preaching. I got saved in 85. I've been preaching since 1988, 1990, something like that. Most of the time, people don't listen to me. You're going to do what you want. Some people do but a lot of people don't because we're very independent. We don't like to submit to the Word of God. Not to submit to a pastor. I do not want anybody to submit to me. I want you to submit to this. This is what I want you to submit to. Not to me, to this. Okay? I'm not looking for that. Never was looking for that. Don't need you to do that. You're not here to serve me. I'm here to serve you. That's my job. My job is to serve you, to build you up, to help you to become all that God's created you to be. I'm, I'm in some way, God says, I want to I bless my church. I want to gift them. So, Rick, I'm giving them you. I'm here for you. you. It's wrong whenever the preachers and ministers start feeling like the people are there for them. You're not here for me. I'm here for you. I'm here to build you up, equip you, to make you all that you're supposed to be. You hear what I'm saying? That's what, what we need to do. How to get off on that? Let me get back. How to get off on that? Oh, yeah, being spirit-led, but okay, rabbit trail, come back. Had a lot of rabbits this week. So anyway, Jesus went in the wilderness because that's, oh, that's where I went there. Okay, so anyway, I always wanted to go out. I was talking about Ezekiel. But I should have known back then, he said, because this was a metaphor he was using to teach, to, to, to confirm what he was doing in my life. He said, I'm not sending you other place, I'm here. I'm talking until till at least four or five years ago, even while I was here, I was double-minded about being here. I was here, but I was waiting for the day that God would take me to the mission field. I want to go to the mission field. I want to go to the mission field. Are you anything like me? I want what I want. I want what I want. This is what I want to do in your name. I want to serve you, God, but I want to do it like this. This is how I want to do it. And then finally, I submitted 
and actually was given a house in another country. My dad left me a house over there, and I said no. And I actually had to give that house away. I gave it away. I let it go because it was pulling me away from what God wanted me. God wanted me here. Once I let it go, then I was free to be here. It was the best thing I ever did because I wasn't double-minded anymore. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. But I saved myself a lot of trouble if I'd have just recognized what God was wanting to do from the beginning and just said, yes, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. What I'm trying to get you to realize is when you submit to what God wants for your life, it'll save you a lot of trouble in your life. It looks like it's going to cause you a lot of trouble, but it really won't because God has your best interests in mind. So anyway, um, we see again that the true power is to be led by the Spirit, and that means to be subject to the Spirit. John 5 and 19, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son, I want you to see what Jesus did, can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. Whatever he sees the Father do, the Son does in like manner. John 12, 49, I've not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. In other words, what I hear the Father say, that's what I say. Being Spirit-led. Right? Have you ever gotten mad at your, your, uh, your spouse and you re- afterwards you said, I don't think I was being Spirit-led? Why do, you, why do you say that? Because they've been hit by a hammer on the side of the head, you know. They're bleeding. I'm bleeding, metaphorically. Nobody feels better. When you do and follow the Spirit of God, in the end, everybody will feel better if they submit. Anyway, per Jesus' example, so we too, His church, in order to become all He intended for us to be, to exercise the influence that He wants us to exercise in life, we must submit to His words, submit to His program, submit to what He wants in life. First of all, we've got to be saved. We've got to be born again. Second of all, we've got to receive the power that He's given to us so we can exercise the influence of the Spirit of God in our life. But finally, it all needs to come under two things. One is we've got to demonstrate and move in love like we learned last week, but we also have to learn how to be led by the Spirit of God. It's not enough. Pentecostal churches are famous for having the, being baptized with the Spirit of God, dancing in the Spirit, falling in the Spirit, laying in the Spirit, you know, doing all these kind of things, and then going out and cussing at each other in the parking lot. Living in sin, walking in sin. It's, it, it doesn't negate that God wants you to baptize, filled with the Spirit of God, but He wants you to be holy people that have a holy power of God flowing through their life to exercise influence. It's going to exercise influence in you, and then it's going to exercise influence out of the community. They'll know you're Christians by your love for one another. Amen? So let me, the final part of the conclusion, the final part of God's restoration process was restoration of the city walls. The walls and gates were a place of strength and protection that allowed the word of God to be established. They represent a place of maturity in God. God is committed to the full maturation of his church and another sign of the mature sons is that they're being led by the spirit. We learn today that being led by the Spirit implies two things. One is mature sons are strong in the Spirit. You've received the baptism of the Spirit, and you've learned how to, to, to allow the Spirit of God to move in your life. And two, that strength that mature sons possess is strength that is controlled. Mature sons are those who are surrendered to the leadership of the Spirit, the Spirit of God that is in them and the Spirit of God that is on them in their lives. Amen? Okay, so restoration of the people of God. If you're here today and you've been listening to what we've been talking about, then hopefully by now 
you've experienced uh, salvation, right? You've gotten saved, which is great. We want you to get saved. If you're here today and you're not right with God, either you've never been saved or you've used to walk in right relationship with God, but you've gone off and done your own thing and you know today you're just not where you need to be. And pretty much people know. If they've had an experience with God, they know. Why? They're convicted. Not condemned, but convicted. I ain't right. If I had to stand in the presence of God, I ain't right. When I come to this church, I realize I ain't right. I got stuff in my life. It ain't right. What do I do? The Bible says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a matter of faith, just believing that Jesus paid a price for that. Well, I've never been saved. What do I got to do? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just believe that Jesus Christ died in your place, shed his blood so that you might have righteousness, you might walk in right relationship with God. And when you do that, Jesus Christ uh, sends the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God takes up residence in your life. You become saved. You become a vessel of the Lord. So it doesn't matter where you're at, whether you've never been saved or you have been, but you're not right with God. You get to a place where you're in your right relationship with God. Great. Now I know that if I die, I'm going to heaven. Well, that's a good thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm trying to get you to a place where you realize he wants more for his church than that. Oh, you want me to come to church every time the doors are open? Yes, we want that to happen. But that's not what we're talking about. Oh, you want me to give my 10%? Yeah, we want that to happen, but that's not what we're talking about. What do you want? God wants his church to be a full, mature bride who exercises influence in this world. In love, they heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out devils. Not just people, but institutions, cities, counties, countries, experience the kingdom of God because the people of God have risen up and they have risen and shine and the glory of the Lord has risen upon them and those people go out and they affect the land around us and in uh, power we see change coming, not just change in people's lives, but because the Spirit of God is moving in you, God gives you uh, incredible understanding, incredible solutions to the world's problems. Why doesn't God help change the world? Why doesn't God bring solutions to the problems that we're in? Because it takes people that know God who will allow the Spirit of God to give them the solutions for the problems in their home, the problems in their business, the problems in their, in their workplace, the problems in their schools. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. The Spirit of God wants to work through you to bring solutions to the world's problems. I'm going to preach on this one day. But Jesus' purpose was not just to come and do what he did. His purpose was to raise up disciples who in turn would raise up more disciples who in turn would raise up more disciples to do what he did. The works that I do, greater works than these shall you do. And the one text that got me there is when the disciples say, Lord, these people are, you know, he said he wanted, they were hungry and they called him to tell Jesus and he said to them, you feed them. No, Lord, you feed them. He said, no, you feed them. We don't know how to feed them. I'm going to show you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you how to move and flow supernaturally to impact this crowd that has a need.